Can we dig again to what you mean by balanced here? Would love to get a sense of that. <sighs> See, you're making me have to define what I mean. Um, <laughs> so I guess from balanced of like any of the things that we've talked about, right? Like, does it help balance the software we write at the end of the day? Are there things about it that make it a good language for people to contribute to? Are there things that make it a hard language to contribute to? And then like the personal life of engineers. Are there things about Go that make it so that engineers can take vacation and feel good about it? Or the things that are like, oh no, because we develop in this style, because we develop this language, it's harder for people to do those things. Big thanks to our partners, Linode Fastly and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Get $100 in credit at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. Sourcegraph is universal code search that lets you move fast, even in big code bases. Here's CTO and co-founder Byung Liu explaining the problems that Sourcegraph solves for software teams. Yeah, so at a high level, the problems that Sourcegraph solves, it's this problem of, for any given developer, there's kind of two types of code in the world, roughly speaking. There's the code that you wrote and understand, like the back of your hand, and then there's the code that some idiot out there wrote. Or, you know, alternatively, if you know you don't like the term idiot, it's the code that some inscrutable genius wrote and that you're trying to understand. And oftentimes that inscrutable genius is like you from, you know, a year ago. <laughs> and, and you're going back and, and trying to make heads or tails of, of what's going on. And really, Sourcegraph is about making that code that some idiot or inscrutable genius wrote feel more like the code that you wrote and understand kind of intuitively. It's all about helping you grok all the code that's out there, all the code that's in your organization, all the code that is relevant to you in open source, all the code that you need to understand in order to do your job, which is to build the feature, write the new code, fix the bug, etc. All right, learn how Sourcegraph can help your team at info.sourcegraph.com slash changelog. Again, info.sourcegraph.com slash changelog. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. Subscribe today at gotime.fm, which also has recommended episodes from the backlog, the most popular ones, and a request form, so you can tell us what you want to hear about on the pod. Once again, that's gotime.fm. All right, take it away, Chris. Here we go. Welcome to Go Time. I'm your host today, Chris Brando. Today, we're going to be talking about maintenance once again. This is episode three, I think it is, in this maintenance mini-series we're doing. And today, we're talking about not maintaining our code, not building or buying, but instead maintaining ourselves and our lives. I'm joined today by my co-panelist, Natalie Pistonovich. How are you doing today, Natalie? Hello. I'm doing better than my internet. Thank you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that is a good thing. <laughs> and Natalie and I are joined today by Ian Lubshire. How are you doing today, Ian? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Amazing. All right, then. So as I said, we're going to be talking about maintaining our lives today and more importantly, maintaining balance within our lives and to start off, I have uh, an interesting question I wanted to pose to my two panelists here. How many weeks do you think are in the average human life? Ian, why don't you take a guess first? Um, well, about 50 weeks in a year, about 80 <laughs> years in a life, so like 4,000. Why are you doing math? You doing math? All right, Ian says 4,000. What do you say, Natalie? I agree with Ian. I think uh, there's that article by uh, Wait But Why that they count that, and they also show which part of that you spend with your parents until you're 18, and then you leave the house. And I think that one left a strong impression of me that this is so little. But yeah, I agree that this is roughly a similar number, I guess, if you live about 80 years. Yeah, well, you're, you're both right. <laughs> it's roughly around, it's a little over 4,000 weeks which is a astonishingly short amount of time considering, you know, we spend, what, 20 of that if you go to college and school. 
So that, you know, knocks you down to like 60 like years total. So it's not a large amount of time that we have to work with over the course of our lives. And a lot of that time, you know, we do spend at work, you know, trying to balance the, you know, going to work for eight hours a day, five days a week for most of us. If you happen to work at a startup, that might be more like 10 hours a day, or six days a week or <laughs> something crazy like that. So, yeah, the, the scene for this episode is like, you know, how do we spend those 4,000 weeks as effectively as possible and in a way that makes us as happy as possible? So to start off, let's talk about work and balancing work, not necessarily work in life, but just work. And I'll start with this. You know, I think I've brought it up in episodes before, but a lot of the terminology we use in software engineering is all about like speed or like intensity, right? We have sprints, we have velocity, we have agile. And I want to pose this question to you, my two wonderful panelists. What do you think of the framing of, of these words that we use? Do you think that they're a bit too intense? Do you think that they give the right amount of intensity, I guess, uh, whatever, to how we should feel about the work we're doing and, and the speed at which we need to achieve things. So I do think like sprint specifically is one that kind of gets me. Sprint just kind of gives this idea of I'm going to do something as fast as I can and then be done. But then we do it every week. Just the idea, just the word itself brings to mind like an unmaintainable pace. I was trying to remember what is the word that we were using in my first job. My first job was in hardware. It was in Intel. It was not agile and it was not a startup by all means. I could not manage to remember that word, um, but there is some planning. Obviously, I don't know how I feel about that word because it's been a decade and I don't remember it. So obviously, I didn't feel strongly about that positively or negatively. <laughs> the second job that I had afterwards, slash the first one in software, I was not doing any of the agile stuff. It was not, not sprints, nothing like that, no planning as well. There was a daily stand-up, and I think I really enjoyed that. And then going to the one afterwards, uh, that's how I got introduced to those terms. I did like this less. So exactly, Ian, like you say, this like rush, let's try to make this in time, and let's measure things like velocity, right? Velocity versus speed is back to physics classes that where you're going somewhere in a specific speed, but also you're going with a direction, right? That's like vectors versus... How do you say it in English? Calories? Oh, scalars. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Why Why does velocity have a direction? Why is it not speed? Where are the product managers to answer this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, where's Angelica? Angelica, where are you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would take an assumption to say that probably, you know, we want a direction for where we're going as quickly as we're going. So we kind of aren't just working against ourselves, right? Because we're just optimizing for speed. You know, we could be driving in a circle. We could be one, one sprint going in one way and another sprint turning completely around and going back to where we came from. And obviously, if we just do that, we're not actually going anywhere, even if we are moving quickly. So I guess for, for that one, I would say there's this nice idea of like velocity. At least we're, we're aiming at something. We're trying to get somewhere. But is that something that we should be measuring on a sprint by sprint basis? Is the word velocity that we all just kind of defined between ourselves as like the speed at which we're heading towards something in a direction? Is that the reality of what velocity is in our sprints and in the in the practice of software engineering we do? That's a very meta question. Wow. Um, <laughs> I don't know. What, what do you think, Ian? Do you think that what we just kind of framed velocity as lines up with the velocity that we experience when we actually build software or when we measure our speed of build software? I think we try to make it line up like that. To me, velocity is something that everyone's trying to measure and no one's doing a good job at it. Or maybe I've never been somewhere where we've done a good job at it. I don't know. I actually did not quite follow that whole question that you just asked. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess I can kind of repeat it or I guess rephrase it to be, yeah, I'll rephrase it. So basically, you know, in the conversation we just had, we basically said, you know, Natalie brought up this interesting point about, you know, velocity in, in physics being like speed in a specific direction. And she asked, you know, why did we measure this directionality instead of just the speed at which we're moving? To which I kind of added to and tried to answer a question of by saying, you know, because we, we want to make sure that we're going in a direction that is positive for us, right? We have a goal. We have something that we're trying to build, something that we're trying to do. So that could be why we use the term velocity instead of just trying to measure speed. The question I asked you was does that actually match, right? When we say velocity, when we measure velocity over the course of a number of sprints, is that actually tracking 
the direction in which our software is going? Or is it tracking something else and we're just using the word velocity because it sounds cool? I mean, I think it's the latter. I think we probably use that because it sounds better than speed or they already use speed for something else. I've never seen like a mechanism that says like, hey, did this ticket go backwards in any way? You know, like, did I just spend two hours ripping something out that I spent three hours working on previously? So I do think it's pretty much synonymous with speed. That's a really interesting point, the the ripping out part, right? Like when you see a GitHub pull request that is more red than green, somehow we're all more appreciative of this because somehow surely it makes the code better because it's less of it. And this is in some way kind of going back. I wonder really if there's any logic behind velocity, what is the logic that this is measuring? I also think that's an interesting point, too, because there is this trend that we have of like saying, like, make your code more deletable and we should delete code or we should ideally I think at one point, you know, we're trying to get to the like, don't write the code in the first place. But yeah, on, on the deleting code point, I think that that really is interesting because it's like, yeah, you know, we all strive to make code that's deletable. But what's that really saying? Like we wrote something. Is that deletable code something that we should have had there in the first place? Or do we just write something that we shouldn't have when we made a mistake? And are we doing anything to track those mistakes to try and make sure that in the future we just write less code overall instead of writing code that's deletable? It's a little bit like when you move to a new place and you go to Ikea and quickly buy something until you get real furniture. It's kind of like this code is there until I put real code there. Yeah, but I feel like that's what we just continually do, right? We just like <laughs> continually buy more like foldable like tables and chairs and we get like slightly nicer versions of those <laughs> tables and chairs. Yeah, refactoring is pretty much like one by one finding a nicer one, but I have more IKEA than I'm willing to admit at home. I do think that the one day that I'll decide to make it a more less IKEA flat and more flat flat would be not one by one, but kind of one day I'll bring in a home designer and she'll make everything beautiful, but it will not be one by one. But in software, it's sort of like piece by piece, like element by element. Why is it different? Right. You know, that point, I think that's like a really, really good point there because we do have this very like iterative, don't do big design up front, do it piece by piece. But I think your apartment analogy is like spot on. I know for me personally, like in the last apartment I lived in, I did take this more piecemeal approach, right? I did just buy a bunch of Ikea stuff. And I'm like, I need a bookshelf. So I just like bought a bookshelf. I needed this thing. So I just bought this, like, you know, I need some nightstands. I just bought some nightstands, right? Just like piece by piece. Like every time I need a little thing, I just bought a little thing. But my apartment never really like, it didn't feel like it had a good flow to it. It felt that it was just kind of like assembled piecemeal and things were just kind of patched together. And when I moved into my current apartment, I decided... Now I'm just going to plan everything. I'm going to plan where I want everything, how I want everything, and figure out all of the pieces. And I did that for the first iteration of my apartment. I sat down, I planned everything out, I bought the things, I got the things, I put them up. And then I've added to it since, but all those things I added to are in the same feel. They, they're in the same balance with everything else in my apartment. So it looks like mm. those things were put there right from the beginning. But the only reason I could do that is because I planned up front, right? I said, this is the aesthetic I want for my apartment. This is how I want things to look. This is how I want things to feel. And I feel like a lot of times in Agile, we don't do that, right? It's like we hate to plan. We try and get away from planning. We try to get away from the big upfront design, as it says. It's also a little bit like, I'll just get this temporary thing that my neighbor gave me this nightstand. And then it's like five years in, this is your nightstand. It's not temporary. And in software, it's pretty much the same just quickly going to patch up whatever is needed. And then it's like five years later, oh, maybe we can remove that. And then finally it happens. It does kind of feel that if you have time and you're not rushed to move in, then you can plan and then it will look nice. But if you don't, you just go whatever off the shelf is. And then probably the same as an Ikea apartment feels, probably an Ikea code would feel like this. How would you describe like the equivalent feeling of code in, to an Ikea apartment? I feel like what we do is we build IKEA apartments or IKEA houses, really. Containers. And there are some really nice things at IKEA, but like <laughs> we build like the cheap IKEA stuff, right? I think containers are a good example of that. <laughs> I think Kubernetes is a good example of that, right? Like we, it's like we're going to have an IKEA home. It's like we're going to have a Kubernetes system. And it's like, what does that mean? And I think at least most of the places I've been, it means you just start like pulling pieces off the shelf as you realize that you need them. And you haven't like thought everything through, but there's like so many different pieces that you could put together that you wind up like 
trying to get the best localized decision, but you they don't all fit together. The best, maybe the best container orchestrator or container runtime doesn't fit well with the best like service mesh or whatever. So you wind up with like all of these pieces that like sort of fit together, but don't really fit together. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, you know, we all decide that like, well, this line of Ikea isn't cool anymore, so we're going to toss it out and bring in a whole new line. That's like we just recycle all of the furniture in our apartment, but like we didn't really solve the underlying problem, right? I feel like that's that's a thing of balance. I think that's something we should definitely explore here of just like we do have this cycle in software engineering where we go from like, oh, we're just going to put a bunch of stuff together, get stuff off the shelf because we need to go fast, right? Whether you're a startup or it's a new project, you don't have a lot of timeline or don't have a lot of time or don't have a lot of resources. We just pull a bunch of stuff off, patch it all together. We're like, good, we're moving. And then it works. And then over time, it kind of, it just becomes brittle and it crumbles and everybody hates maintaining it. It's like Ikea furniture that you've taken apart and put together again like a hundred times. And it's like, this stuff doesn't fit anymore. And we're like, okay, we'll throw it all away. (laughs) And then we're going to try again. We're going to try fresh and new. But fast again. (laughs) Yeah, but it's fast again, right? It's like fresh and new, but at the same pace we were moving before. And I feel like... At the same velocity. (laughs) Yeah. We don't want to lose any velocity. You need to keep moving. You need to keep building. We're going to build a whole new platform, a whole new set of microservices or whatever. And I feel like we blame the furniture for being bad, right? It's like we blame Kubernetes for being bad. We blame... REST APIs or JSON or container or whatever. And it's like we bring in the new hotness and it's like, ah, microservices will fix this or gRPC will fix this or whatever. It's like, yeah, that lamp wasn't like, it didn't fit with the decor because it's like a bad lamp. It's because like you didn't buy a lamp that fit with the rest of the stuff. Like you got to buy things that fit together. Yeah, yeah. Man, my my statements are not ending in questions lately. <laughs> <laughs> but they're so wholesome and so true that you just find yourself nodding like, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I feel like this is like Chris just like talks to the world with like Ian and Natalie bringing up really good points. <laughs> <laughs> well, if anybody is listening to this and is going to build the IKEA equivalent of software, hi. We're happy to inspire you. Yes. <laughs> Please make it reverse compatible. I have an old, very old kitchen in my in this apartment and it doesn't fit the new door. So it's, please make it reverse compatible more. Mm. <laughs> I do feel though that, you know, speaking of this kind of like, because I think what we're getting here is some sort of like, we need a better balance of how we build software, right? It's like, we're stuck in this loop, it feels like. It sucks. We got really inspired by iteration, and so we iterate a lot, but it kind of feels like we're iterating on the wrong things. Like we're, we're iterating on the concepts of how we build software, but not the fundamental problems of the software itself. And I feel like one of the things that we tend to iterate toward or kind of default to, at least we did so heavily in pre-pandemic times, maybe it's shifting a little bit now, but it feels like every time there's a problem, we kind of strike up a meeting. We're like, yes, let's have a meeting. Let's put a reoccurring meeting on the schedule. And like that will solve the problems that we're having. We'll get together and we'll have meetings. So my first question is, do either of you find meetings to be productive? I would say maybe one in 10. One in 10 meetings is productive. (laughs) Can you predict, Ian, if a meeting is going to be productive or not? Oh, definitely. Um, Is there more than three people in it? Then no, it's not productive. Like <laughs> it's a good good rule, I think. Yeah. I think if a meeting the intention is to solve a problem when you go into a meeting and not discuss what the problem is, it's probably not going to be productive. Like we shouldn't form solutions in meetings. We should figure out the problems, go solve them, and then like sync back up and be like, Hey, is this a good solution? Not like everyone's sitting around a table trying to solve something, I don't think is the best use of time. It's a very good point. I think also meetings that don't have an agenda or something like a prep doc are also likely to be less productive. Not always, but it's a good indicator. I feel like that's one of the hard balancing things is like, we all know that good meetings, or I guess many of us know that, that good meetings require agendas, but we get a lot of those invites that just <laughs> never have an agenda and they never have like the, what are we actually going to do in these meetings? That's actually one of the rules we have. If there's more than three people in the meeting, it does need an agenda. That's a great one. I like that. That's a good way to balance the meetings in your schedule. All right. So I think we can kind of agree. Like, it seems like there's a way to balance meetings here, right? It's like, I feel like our short conversation has kind of brought us to this conclusion of meetings, not necessarily bad. They can be productive, but they need to have structure to them. They need to have an agenda. They need to have a purpose. Because, you know, there are meetings where you have a really nice agenda, but also it's like, what are we actually 
like what conclusion are we trying to reach? Like sometimes it can be hard just to get to that point as well. But I think another area of balancing work and trying to, you know, keep things in, in order is the backlog, right? Is this, you know, giant list of things that we have. I have definitely felt in the past that like backlogs either become, you know, giant dumping grounds for tasks that we want to do. I often feel pretty endless. It feels like, oh, there's so many things on there that I want to do. And it feels like we're moving through it so slowly. And I wonder if either of you have some maybe suggestions for our audience or some techniques you use to help make the backlog uh, that you guys use feel less daunting. One thing that works actually as a community organizer, so not related to code, is that we have a Trello board per year. And we can carry over meetup ideas, which is what lives in our backlog column. But you have to kind of proactively opt in. You want to do this. It's not kind of like if you have uh, some a board that is not necessarily per year, but per project, this can stay in the backlog forever. But if you give it a lifetime of maximum one year or kind of like the end of the calendar year, you do reevaluate this better and you are more like it's more generally acceptable to kill things in the backlog that, well, it's a good idea. It's not going to happen. We don't take this to the new year. Something that we do is, I think it's called ice scoring, like impact. What is the C? Confidence and ease. So you score them like one to 10, you know, and the compound score is the addition of all of those. And then we just kind of drop everything at the bottom of the list. We archive that and we don't ever look at it again. You know, we've decided it's not a big deal. And if that stuff changes, you know, it's going to rise back up in that list. There's so many of those like prioritization things that exist that probably do work well. And I'm fine with a backlog just being huge. It's not supposed to be organized. It's a backlog. You know, it's it's where I want to put something that I don't want. If I leave, I want someone else to be able to read about it. It doesn't necessarily mean we're going to do it. It's also a place that if you have somebody else who joins the company or the team and says, hey, we should do that. It's like, no, look, it lives in our backlog for three and a half years. Yeah, it's a great idea. But look how hard it is to implement. We're not going to do it. That sort of thing. Otherwise, you rehash things. Like, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Right. Yeah, I, I like that use of, of a backlog. The you know, nice rule in place where it's like, check the backlog before you add something new to make sure it doesn't already exist there. This is the other thing I've found with backlog sometimes is that, you know, we do pile in things. It's like, why are there five the same feature requests or the same thing in here? This episode is brought to you by Honeycomb. Honeycomb is built on the belief that there's a more efficient way to understand exactly what is happening in production right now. When production is running slow, it's hard to know exactly where problems originate. Is it your application code, your users, or the underlying systems? Teams who don't use Honeycomb scroll through endless dashboards guessing at what they mean. They deal with alert floods, guessing which ones matter, and go from tool to tool to tool, guessing at how the puzzle pieces all fit together. It's this context switching and tool sprawl that is slowly killing your teams and your business. With Honeycomb, you get a fast, unified, and clear understanding of the one thing driving your business, production. Honeycomb quickly shows you the correct source of issues, discover hidden problems, even in the most complex stacks, understand why your app feels slow to only some users. With Honeycomb, you guess less and know more. Join the swarm and try Honeycomb free today at honeycomb.io slash changelog. Again, honeycomb.io slash changelog. talked a bit about balancing work. Hopefully we've given our audience some nice tips around that. Let's talk about balancing things outside of work. I want to start with community. You know, many, or I think probably all of our listeners are part of the Go community. So we're all involved in a community. And Natalie, you help organize both the conference and meetups. So I'm wondering for you, do you wind up having to like track the time that you spend in the community space in the same ways that you kind of would track your, your full-time work? I will make a small correction that I'm not helping organizing. I've been the main organizer for the five years and uh, it's been a long five years in the Go meetup and I'm still very much enjoying that. And with the, the Go conference, yeah, I'm not tracking my time 
well, because I don't have a reason to do that, I guess. It is a blocker in the calendar in that sense. So I know not to plan on that. And I know roughly how much it takes. But I think it's all, at least the Go Meetup is somewhat structured in the sense that uh, it used to be this the same format every time. And now, and then we were two organizers and there were three. And each one owns a month. And on months when we have a good backlog of speakers and... I'll take a second to say that we always need speakers. Please submit the talk. Even if you give it in another meetup, we're happy to hear that. Yes, it's online. Yes, we'd still want to hear that. Um, jumping back, I know that I will have to do the same few steps as I've been doing for the past few years, every few months. And I guess because it's so automated, it's also no longer needed really to be tracking. But maybe whenever inviting a new co-organizer on board, which used to be slightly more frequent in the COVID days when people would relocate more, I guess. I had to put a number on this when I was asking if anybody wants to help me because I would say, this is how many hours you need to commit to. But now the same organizers are with me for two years now. So I think I forgot how long it takes. I would track that if there would be any monetary things as I would track my job, yes. But because this is community work, I guess saying that like an evening a month for joining the meetup and then a few more hours of here and there like emails. Mm. No. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's, that yeah, makes sense. I know for me personally, I've, um, I don't think I've ever tracked my own hours for community work, but I have noticed that I do self-regulate a lot. So if I'm like involved in too many things, I've mm-hmm. organized several conferences and meetups in my past, even going back to like my, my days of Drupal, actually. Hilarious side note, I'm still part of the Drupal community in New York City. Like, I think it's like 10 years later at this point. And yeah, I kind of like pull back and then go back in when I like, if I feel like I'm burning out a little bit, I kind of pull back and then kind of swaps in. And I think that's an interesting thing that happens in communities that I've found is that like the organizers, the people that you know keep everything going, they do tend to change over time. I think it's amazing that you've been an organizer for five years, Natalie. I know you've gotten it down to be like a few hours a month plus the the night, but that's a long journey for sure. I've seen a lot of organizing groups kind of cycle in and cycle out. It's a German efficiency. Yes, you've gotten your velocity <laughs> to a very, very high degree. So you can just knock out all of those tasks you have to do. The German pipeline. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's that German efficiency that we, we've got going. And I wonder, and, and maybe you kind of already answered this, do you find yourself setting boundaries around things or are they just really just built into the way that you've set things up? Like, do you ever get close to experiencing burnout when it comes to your organizing or anything like that? Definitely, yeah. Occasionally when, when that feeling comes, it's in the form of, I don't want to do this anymore. And then I would probably ask one of my co-organizers to step in and just, switch months. So that's the good thing about having the option of switching. And I think it also comes a little bit with like big holidays for me. You know, if it's, this is a Christmas slowdown, then I think it's a bit of a mental, like, let's make sure that the December meetup is very early in the year and the January is very early in the month. It's very late in the month. So there'll be like a bigger gap, but it also makes sense because so many people have travel plans. To make another analogy, it's a little bit like budgeting. You know, some people budget in the sense that they know to the resolution of like pennies of cents, how they spend their money and where it goes. And I find that for me, putting a cutoff and saying all the expenses under, I don't know, 50 bucks, I would not really keep track. And I'm okay with that because I know where the 80% of my money is spent and the rest is here and there. I think spending, managing and spending and using the time in a similar way is the way that works for me. Mm. But organizing meetups is one way of doing community work. Open source is another way of doing community work. Right. Yeah. Ian, how do you budget your open source time? You know, I, I'm much more of a consumer of open source right now than a major contributor. But I kind of tend to treat all of the like open source stuff and general work stuff as like kind of one big block. So that kind of comes in when there's slower times with my real job. I tend to work on like open source stuff like that. I think mainly because I only have so many hours a day in me that I feel like I can sit down and think about tech stuff, think about code. So yeah, I don't know if it's the healthiest way to to budget that, but I tend to just lump those together. Yeah, I would say for me, I think the main open source contribution I've done has been part of work. So it's always been lumped together. So I think I, especially when it comes to code open source, like the most open source code I've written was for a job that I had. 
So I never had it be like a separate thing, but I, from community work, I've definitely gotten the sense of burnout before. I've definitely been in that place where it's just like, I'm going to take a step back. But I think what, for me, what it often turns into is like, I want to do something slightly different from what I was doing before. So like a good example of that for me is with the Drupal stuff. Originally, I was like one of the main people organizing the meetup. And then I became like the AV person. So I'd take care of like recording all of the meetups and then getting them up to YouTube and all of that. And then I also became the person that would like take care of all of the food and beverages to make sure we had pizza and beer and all of that at the meetup. And then for a while, I had like the venue. So it was like, oh, I'll like make sure we can have the space every month. So it's like I always like trade off roles whenever I feel like one of the roles I'm in is like getting too exhausting or getting too boring for me. So I think that's always a sign of like burnout. So yeah, I think that's like another way that you can kind of like help balance your life when it comes to community involvement and community work. And I think that applies to open source as well. Like I can imagine a, a good scenario where you could, you know, maybe you start with contributing to code, but then you don't have much time to do code. So maybe you should do code reviews or maybe you just do documentation. Although I kind of feel like it's the other way around because like documentation and code reviews take way more energy than writing code most of the time. Um, but whatever it is you kind of trade off, I, I think that can also be a good way to like keep yourself away from burnout for you know any of the kind of community stuff you might wind up doing. Speaking of code reviews and writing documentation, Hacktoberfest is now. Any of you signed up? I have not. Have you signed up to in the past? I feel like I haven't heard of it before. Yeah, I'm on the same boat here. I've never heard of Hacktoberfest. Is it my accent or? <laughs> no, no, it's. <laughs> <I> just... <laughs> okay, just making sure. It's uh, GitHub and some other companies like DigitalOcean, and some of them change over the years. But if you make this many open source contributions, so it can be code, it can be a PR, it can be documentation, the rules change a little bit every year, then they send you a swag oh. packet like stickers and t-shirts and so on. And then it's always fun to wear that into a job interview because they're like, oh, you're contributing to open source. That's nice. I like that. So do you have to do those? I think it's three. I forget. You have to make those contributions within the month of October. Mm. And there's some rules that you cannot, you know, make up repos and contribute to yourself. So not cheats like that, <laughs> but actually do something good to whatever level that you can. It can also be contributing like typos and so on, really any level that works for you but it has to be helping promote open source. I think it's a wonderful initiative and it's the small things that kind of like, because you get that t-shirt, because you get that care package, it's really, it's fun. It makes you enjoy Hacktoberfest more or open source more. Yeah, no, I think that's really cool. And we can check that out. Yeah, same. Because who doesn't want more swag? <laughs> Especially without, with the fewer in-person conferences, I feel like my amount of swag has just like been so low these past few years. I have to say the Hacktoberfest t-shirts every year, they're so soft. It's like, the wonderful t-shirts that you get and like you know there's always that one vendor that everybody likes their shirt it's this mm. one you want their shirts oh yeah that's the other <laughs> thing i remember at conferences is those high quality t-shirts it's like i'm gonna remember your company forever now because you have that one really nice conference shirt that i can wear forever and in the last two years many of them have been through tests that we wear house clothing way more often and don't get to refresh that stash yeah yeah well hopefully in-person conferences will make a return next year and we'll be able to gather together again. All right, well, let's move on to another topic about balancing our lives and let's talk about actually balancing our life-life. We talk about work-life balance. Well, there's a life component there. And it feels like even though we have so much to do at work, sometimes it feels like we have even more to do in our personal lives, depending on what your actual personal life is, You know, whether that's kids or extracurriculars you're doing or hobbies that you have, even those hobbies are things like open source or community. So I would ask my two panelists here, uh, what do you do in your life to prevent feeling overwhelmed by like what's happening and all of the, the things that you have going on? Well, I can tell you what Ian is doing. I think Ian loves walking his dog. <laughs> no. I really enjoy spending time with my cat. I include her in most of my social media. So probably most of my Instagram stories is her. A good amount of my Twitter pictures is her. <laughs> I try to spend a lot of uh, a lot of my professional time with her. I feel like cats and coding is a good combination. I do enjoy being outside a lot. I used to work on my sailing license. I did make a pause and I do hope to continue. I really hope to have made it to the next level this summer. This did not happen. So maybe I'll use the winter slowdown for that. Probably sports because it's always good for you. 
And well, somehow I'm one of those people that doing meetups is really energizing them. Okay. When the evening or, or even organizing events mm. start with the evening and then 15 things went wrong. And then it's the end of the night. I'm like, whoo, that was fun. So in an online, it's not the same. I have to say. I totally agree with that. The, the in-person meetups are something that like, I, I feel like I'm still making progress in like work and career, but it's just so enjoyable that it does feel like a nice balance. And just being able to go and get like a drink with a friend afterward as well. That's always, it's nice. I definitely feel you there, Natalie, with the whole like, yeah, I mean, you've had this big event and it's over and you're just sitting there and you're just like, oof, that was a lot, but it felt amazing. Yes. The energy you draw from that can be absolutely wonderful. So Ian, what do you do when you start feeling overwhelmed with life or to prevent yourself from feeling overwhelmed with everything going on in life? For me, a big one there is exercise. Like I climb pretty regularly and try to do that more when I'm kind of feeling burnt out or have a lot going on. It's amazing. You can spend like an hour a day exercising and it feels like it gives you back like three hours in your day of focus and not feeling drained. And yeah, that's kind of about it. I'm pretty simple, simple guy. Nice. I think that going outside, leaving the house is uh, it's different for people who live in a house versus people who live in a flat. I live in a classic like old German building with very high ceilings and I live in the last floor and we have no elevator. So going outside is like from the moment that I touch the door handle until I'm breathing outside air and I have to go through the like yard between the buildings and then to the second building. So this is like solid six minutes. Mm. So living the house is like a big engagement. (laughs) (laughs) And I imagine if I would live in a house or even in the ground floor of a building, it would be like a lot more of an easier thing to go outside and grab some sun, like especially as the winter is coming and the days are shorter, less light. It's a good question to bring up because you should be more mindful of that, especially if you live further from the equator and you're getting more dark hours. Yeah, I, I definitely try um, over the past year, like I think it was in like December of last year, I was like, I'm not working out. I'm not doing enough to like keep myself physically healthy. So I started just like jump roping. And then when the spring rolled around, I started running again. And I just remember how different it felt from like, you know, in the middle of last year, I was just like inside for days and days and days at a time. I'd like order my groceries, order my food. Cause I'm like, I'm in New York city. There's a pandemic. I don't want to go outside. Like it's absolutely terrifying outside. And I don't think I realized how much that did wear on me until like I did start getting outside again and running and just like having the fresh air and all of that. But likewise, I I live more vertically high in the air. So there is like an elevator ride that is somewhat quick, but it is like this experience of like exiting my home, which is not the same as when you live in a house and you just kind of like open the door and then boom, you're outside. It's like, now I got to like actually get in an elevator and then have my ears pop and all this other stuff that happens as you're going down. It's like a, it's like a transition. But the other thing that I do to try and not feel overwhelmed is I tend to write a lot. Like I do a lot of journaling, what some might consider a ridiculous amount of journaling, but it's that thing that like keeps me centered at the end of the day. Like I think now I'm up to writing about 5,000 words per day of just like journaling and just getting everything out of, out of my head. So I think like if writing is your thing, dedicating yourself to actually journaling every day is a really good way to kind of prevent yourself from feeling overwhelmed. So we aren't always great at keeping ourselves from being overwhelmed. And, you know, when you experience a lot of being overwhelmed over the same period of time, we tend to burn out. So first, I want to ask if you have felt overwhelmed in the past a lot and gotten close to burnout or gotten close to burnout and caught yourself, how have you like avoided falling all the way into burnout? How do you kind of like reverse the trend that happens there? Yeah, so I've caught myself feeling that way a couple of times, like in the last couple of years. And I think when I am starting to feel burnout and like overwhelmed, I have this, I used to have this habit of kind of shutting down and not communicating and, you know, like the project's not going well, you know, kind of get this landslide of it's not going well. So then I feel bad. So I'm not as productive. So it goes down. And I think the biggest way to get out of that is just communication, communicate with your team, communicate with your manager, your everyone. And just, if everyone knows where you're at and everyone's okay, like that pressure just kind of goes away. I think that really helps alleviate some of that burnout. Obviously, it doesn't do everything for it, but it just does help it from escalating. It also makes things more manageable. Like it's not as scary that, like, oh no, they they know, <laughs> they know that all this time it was one thing, but this is what now and and no more, and I will not do that work and so on. So definitely, like, 
And it says there's a um, the sunlight is disinfecting. Yeah. Yes. It sounds better in other languages, but it makes sense even in English, in the sense of uh, communicating that makes things kind of more into proportion and stops that from being a snowball. Yeah. I definitely agree that telling to the team that there will be a slowdown coming up, uh, velocity is not going to be the same. <laughs> <laughs> Those are good professional ways uh, or good ways of handling that in your professional life. Oh, yeah. I, I like those. So have you ever gotten to the point where you are just like actually fully burned out? You know, like it's exhausting to get out of bed every morning. You're just like, I just I just don't want to. Can I just not? If that has happened to you, how have you actually um, kind of pulled yourself out of that situation? So I used to work for a company that has or had unlimited vacation day policy. And that, of course, translated to me taking like maybe two Monday, Friday to bridge for a little bit of a long weekend. But then it came, I think, September or it's like close to my birthday, which is end of August. And I realized that I have not been on vacation for probably a year, probably more. I took a week off on my birthday and it was terrible <laughs> because I didn't make any travel plans. I didn't do anything specific. So I was just sitting at home and I was because my brain was used to be working so much, but it had no new tasks. I just filled it up with all sorts of ideas. And, and that week I came out of it with like a list of 50 half started, half done projects. <laughs> and just like putting it in the backlog versus saying I'm not going to do it is also a bit of a mental toll for me saying, oh, I'm not going to do that. Probably I learned how to say no well from that week. And what I would do today is catch it earlier and take some time off, maybe not a week, maybe a few days and see if I need more. And I'm really enjoying binging books in Audible, mm. just on something completely different, like not stories, but sort of like skills or something like a discovery interesting that somebody made, something like that. This is a kind of shift the focus, but still remain somewhat productive. So channeling that energy somewhere else. I kind of think you hit the nail on the head when you said catch it earlier. I do think like it's obviously best to catch it before you get to the point where it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. And uh, something interesting I've seen recently is like mandatory vacation. I've seen like a couple of companies talking about that, both to prevent this burnout and to just better tech. You know, if you're not there, everything should still function. The company I currently work for does something kind of like this. We have one Friday a month where everyone's off. So it's kind of one of these recharge days and it seems kind of silly, but having everyone off at the same time really does take the pressure off. Like it's not vacation at this point, you know, it's no one's working, no one's, I'm not holding anyone up. I'm not. And that's during, especially during these like hard times, that's went a long way. In Norway, there's a thing that if you don't take your vacation days for the year, your employer gets a fine. Wow. Oh, wow. So yeah, people have their vacations. You're going to have to have a really good reason not to do that. And like, nobody will want to do you to not to have all of those. I think this is a big mental difference generally between Europe and the US, how many vacation days you have. So German minimum mandatory for a full-time job, I think it's 24 days and you can carry over to the next year. Like different companies have different numbers, but usually something like 10 and you have to use them until March the following year. But there's this tweet that goes around, right, that everybody laughs at that says, like, the, uh, compare the German, uh, the European and the American mentality of uh, I'm going to be out of the office between 5 and 7 p.m. because I'm undergoing a surgery, but I'll respond to your email as soon as, as possible versus <laughs> I'm out on the lake fishing and I'll talk to you in a month only if you follow up with your email because I'm going to delete all of them the day I'm back. And this is a big <laughs> difference. <laughs> and of course, it's exaggerating, but I think this is a very interesting concept to say that if your email is important, this is when I'm back, bump it. Like it's on you to bump it. It's not necessarily on me to go through 3,000 emails because I went on a really long vacation. Yeah, and I think, Ian, you kind of brought up this other perspective of it where it can be actually beneficial for the company as well to make sure people are taking their vacation time. I know that in, at least in the U.S., and I imagine other places as well, in the financial industry, certain positions have mandatory contiguous two-week vacation times every year. 
that's to ensure that, you know, like it takes about two weeks for a financial scheme to fall apart. So that's to make sure that like fraud isn't happening. But I think the same sort of thing can apply for us in software, just like making sure that there's not like a single person that's keeping this one system running because like they always wake up when it's falling over. And if that person like got sick or if they left, now there's like that whole system would break. So I think, yeah, having days or weeks where it's just like, yeah, nobody's here or like everybody has to take this like big long time off just to make sure that we have that organizational resiliency to actually survive someone being gone for a period of time um, is definitely in the, the best interest of the company as a whole. So it's good for the worker, good for the person. It's a win-win. That's a really good point. It's true. That's the way to find single points of failure. Yeah, because, you know, it comes up in conversations all the time of like this, you know, whether you call it the bus factor or just like the sick factor or the I won the lottery factor. It's like what happens when like these people disappear from the company? It's like, well, you can artificially make that happen with the benefit of them coming back after it's done so you don't actually lose them. It's one of those like risk planning things. And it also kind of forces you to see how much you're depending on individual people, right? Because if you're like, my God, I can't be like have that one person gone for two weeks because like things won't get done we'll fall behind in all of our schedules well that's also a gigantic risk that you should probably be mm -hmm. mitigating and, and figuring out 100 This episode is brought to you by our friends at Incident.io. Every software team on the planet has to manage incidents and a very large percentage of those teams are using Slack to communicate. That includes us. With Incident.io, you can create, manage, and resolve incidents directly inside Slack. Here's how it works. Head to Incident.io and sign up for free, then add it to your Slack. From there, you have a brand new incidents channel where all incidents get announced. Use the slash incident command to create and manage incidents. This command lets you share updates, assign roles, set important links, and more, all without ever leaving the incident channel. Each incident gets their own Slack channel plus a high-res dashboard at Incident.io with the entire timeline from report to resolution. Get everyone on the same page from the moment they join the incident and help stakeholders stay in the loop. Add incident IO to your Slack today and prove yourself and your team that they have everything you need to streamline your incident management. Learn more and sign up for free at incident.io. No credit card required. Again, incident.io. about Go specifically. So I want to have like a little part at the end here to ask you if there are ways in which you see Go either helping or hindering a kind of balanced development style or like a balanced development experience for software engineers. Can we dig in and uh, to what you mean by balanced here? I just would love to get a sense of that. <sighs> see, you're making me have to define what I mean. Um, <laughs> So I guess from balanced of like any of the things that we've talked about, right? Like, does it help balance the software we write at the end of the day? Does it help balance? Are there things about it that make it a good language for people to, to contribute to? Are there things that make it a hard language to contribute to? And then like, just in like the personal life of engineers, like what are the, are there things about Go that make it like, make it so that engineers like, you know, can take vacation and feel good about it? Or the things that are like, oh no, like because we develop in this style, because we develop in this language, it's harder for people to do those things. Just curious if there's any linkages you see for that into Go itself. And maybe improvements we could make as a community or within the language to help resolve those things that more hinder people's ability to balance. I feel like the simplicity of Go comes up in kind of every conversation, but mm -hmm. I think it belongs here as well. The readability of Go does make it so like when you're gone for two weeks, you know, and something goes down, someone can read through your code and figure out what it is. Like, I, I do think the, the barrier to entry and code you didn't write in Go is is lower than a lot of other languages. And also a lot of the mentality that is related with Go, like doing things, TDD, like all the unit test plus integration test and all the benchmarking can kind of puts a good frame around things. Like you, you feel you have more tools to feel confident and comfortable in knowing what to expect and assume things with slightly more confidence. Also with an easier way, right? Because things like benchmarking, for example, is built in. Yeah, the fact that there's one library for doing unit tests where if something's going wrong, I can very easily go in and 
create a unit test that fails for it and try to find a fix. I do think that helps specifically in like those everything has gone wrong and I need to fix it right now things. Also Go gave us, or the creation of Go followed by creation a lot of tools that were written in Go that help maintenance or even understanding what things are wrong, uh, making it all easier, whether it's uh, orchestration, whether it's all the different monitoring tools that were written in Go and so on. So that also definitely helped. I feel that also the Go community is somewhat bringing the more relaxed mentality into work. So kind of because this is a friendly and, and mindful community, most Go developers take this back to their team and so make the tech team kind of more not so stressful. And of course, you have to meet the velocity and you have to do and deliver and so on, but it also still friendly enough. And, and this comes up in conversations and in in understanding when things go wrong. It's less so now, I think, but in the early days of Go, the kind of combination of a standard library that had like usable packages with an awful dependency management solution made it so that we didn't have a lot of dependencies in our Go code. And I feel like that helps with the overall maintainability. Like, yeah, you have to like write some code that you might have not had to write in another language or copy some code from somewhere you might not have had to do in another language because you could have just grabbed a dependency. But it feels like the long-term effects of having fewer dependencies is that like fewer things are there to break. Because there's fewer things that like, oh, this dependency got updated and now like broke all of the stuff I had or like there's a security flaw that now I have to like go and dig in and, and figure out if it affects my code or whatnot. I feel like that low number of dependencies that we have definitely is a, is a boon to go, mm-hmm. at least has been historically. And if you're a DevOps person, you know, it can always cross compile very easily. Yeah. Also nice. You can actually assemble container images on your Mac locally without having to run a Linux VM, which is cool. All right. Well, I think it's time for some uh, unpopular opinions. I actually think you should probably leave. All right. Natalie, do you have an unpopular opinion? I have an unpopular opinion fresh from today. Oh! Today I gave a talk about how to give technical talks. And one of the slides included my personal recommendation to use more memes, less text. And then I had several other more slides and then we had a breakout room. And then I was not participating because it was for the attendees. And then we came back all together to the call. And then all the attendees were saying like their conclusions kind of from discussing this in the breakout rooms. And most of the breakout rooms say that memes are not necessarily a good idea. It can be not inclusive to people who don't know a specific meme. It can get offensive. It can, especially if you change it from, you know, using a meme generator to make it relevant for whatever technical topic you're focusing on. This can also not work. So a lot of people war against this idea and this became my unpopular idea or unpopular opinion use more memes and slides i like your unpopular opinion like i (laughs) i don't know the meme part maybe the meme part's what makes it unpopular here but i just like i want more like just random nonsense for me to look at on the slide while i listen to what you're saying like i don't like it when people put a lot of text on the slide and then read that because i'm just gonna read it and then i'm not really listening to them and it just makes it more difficult to like comprehend and understand what is going on. It's kind of like an audiobook. It's like, I need something to look at or something to do, like folding the laundry while I'm listening to this and like processing what you're saying. And if I'm doing something that distracts me, it makes it harder to actually like understand. So like mm-hmm. either like a nice image or, or something that just kind of like helps me understand what you're saying is good. Text on a slide, not great. But I think that's where memes can be like really helpful. But I understand people's concerns, but also like, yeah. Like, <laughs> if you don't know the meme, trying to figure out how it relates, I do think is engaging. Even like just tangentially related pictures where you're like, looking like, why is there a picture of a penguin on the screen and you're talking about this thing? You know, like, I do think it's engaging. Yeah. So I, I think I would agree with that one as well. Maybe it's a know your audience thing. Like, know if they're going to understand the meme. But yeah, I mean, memes are just part of daily life now. It's just one of those things. We're just like, yeah. It's also you need to strike a balance between like not too outdated memes so that people will 
like, oh yeah, that was funny two years ago, but also <laughs> not something that most people don't know. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. The world we live in. Memes. <laughs> I bet there's a lot of memes to express that sentiment as well. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, do you have an unpopular opinion? I think so. I don't know if this one's come up before, but, uh, and this is kind of just a negative thing, but I don't like make. I see make files everywhere just for like building things and running things. And I have never liked make. I just think it makes things more complicated. I have to have Ruby installed. For make? Is it make Ruby? Yeah. Make isn't Ruby. Is it Python? I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it's old. It is very old, but. There's that distinction between tabs and spaces in make. And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think the guy that created make was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> At some point for I think I think it was specifically the tabs and spaces problem with make files. I see a lot of make files that literally have one command in them. It's like make build and it just runs a go build. That I can yeah, when I see a make file that just like has one liners that are all of the go commands, I kind of question like why? <laughs> why not write a shell script? Why not write a go program that runs your thing? Like get all meta. <laughs> Shout out to Mage uh, if anyone's seen that the go version of make i actually wouldn't recommend using it most of the time but (laughs) this will be in the show notes (laughs) do you specifically not like make or do you also not like all of the variants of make no i don't like the variants either like okay just write a shell script you know i can have a folder of shell scripts and how is that any harder than it can be less confusing i know there's there's all sorts of things i've tripped over and make before like the way that shub cells work that always trips me up of like what gets passed in versus what doesn't. It's that might be a 50 50 split. There might be some people that find it like, no, I love make. And then there's probably a bunch of people that are like, burn it to the ground. <laughs> and it could be, I just haven't taken the time to really dig in and understand everything, but I just don't know if I want to do that. That's fair. All right. So I, I at the end of the day, I don't know if either of these would be popular or unpopular, but we're going to uh, put them on Twitter and we're going to see what our, what our wonderful listeners have to say. Chris, what is your most popular, unpopular opinion? Do you remember? The one that got the most, like, people said that it was unpopular? That's very meta. Let's say yes. Okay. <laughs> so I think I had two that were tied as, like, the most unpopular, unpopular opinions. And I think the one that I remember was the one where I said that calling it Golang and not Go is a respect problem for our community. That one really got, got some feedback the people felt very strongly about that one. So I think that was my most unpopular, unpopular opinion. Yeah. I had another one that was also very unpopular, but I don't remember what it was. I disagree with the Golang one. <laughs> I'd find with like, you using it in context, like, I don't know, like if you need to hashtag Golang or type into Google, whatever, but like, don't put on a book cover. Okay. Yeah. Don't put it on. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> you're right there. But yeah, I, I don't know people disagreed with me but that's the point of unpopular opinions they're supposed to be unpopular so that's how you win it's like the worst game to win because it means that he said something unpopular (laughs) all right so i think that about does it for uh us in this episode on balancing work and life Uh, i want to thank you ian for joining us today and and thank you natalie for helping on as my co-host thank you chris it's a pleasure All right, that is our show for this week. Thanks for listening. Good news. We just restocked the GoTime merch so you can rep your favorite podcast with a comfy tee. Check it out. We probably have your size now at gotime.fm slash merch. GoTime is produced by Jared Santo with music by Breakmaster Cylinder. We are brought to you by our awesome sponsors. Shout out to Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. Next time on GoTime, Natalie welcomes Ashley Willis and Ella Kreef to the show. They're discussing technical people management. We'll have that episode ready for you next week. You know, we missed this episode. I just realized we missed a Thanos joke. All things perfectly balanced as they should be. (laughs) Delete half the code. Yeah.
that is the solution to most problems. Just delete half of it. I think I saw somewhere like the, uh, an open source project that is called Thanos that does exactly that. It randomly deletes 50% of your code. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could probably in a lot of code bases delete like half of the tests and that would make up for half of the code in the, or you could delete the tests and make up for most of the code in the code base. I would say most of our code bases are more test code than yeah. real code. Something that deletes randomly 50% of your backlog. Oh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> I like that one. Have you guys seen the the code, what's it called? Um, like GitHub's thing where it automatically writes code for you. Like you can stub out a function. In it. Codex, yeah. I bet there could be like a Thanos snap version of that where it looks at everything and then simplifies it down to like half-ish. Interesting. It's just like, yeah, we're just going to get rid of most of this. Goodbye, wipe it away. Just delete all of your tests. It's like, ah, do you really need them? The random documentation lines. Uh, <laughs> or better yet, a tool that just goes around and like randomly changes small things within your code base but keeps them compilable. Just like really big annoyances. That's mean. Fuzz. Real, the real fuzzing. <laughs> it reminds me of like I saw this TikTok once and it was like a guy and he was just like, if you really want to get back at someone, like do these things. And like one of them was like, go to someone who you don't like's house as like a party and take all of the remotes except one. Because then they'll be like, where are the remotes? I have this one. So clearly, like, no one took them. It's just, like, just small things that inconvenience people's lives. I'm like, yeah, something. Make a bot. Put dead batteries in all the remotes. <laughs> or that. It's like, why are my, none of my remotes working? Just, like, little in, inconveniences in people's lives. Don't do that. That's a way to unbalance other people's lives. And this episode was about balancing people's lives. Exactly. Exactly. Although I, I guess you could balance your life by unbalancing someone else's life. No, no, that's negative. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> balance it to the positive. Yes. Positive balance. But if you want to write a bot that people can run on their own code bases that puts small annoyances into their, into their code. That's just a community contribution, right? Like, uh, does that count for Hacktoberfest? Yeah. And that, that could be a tool, like a pull request. Like, make sure you're reviewing your code base. There's like slight differences, like actual bit rot, right? <laughs> that could be a good name for it. Bit rot. Did you run the BitRot bot? <laughs> oh, man, this episode is wild. Why are you doing math? Doing math?